those of you who remain, would you open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13? The remnant that is behind at Summit Bible Church. Matthew 13. We're going to finish the chapter and then read on into chapter 14 this morning. Starting in verse 53. It reads, and when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But... When Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Let's pray one more time before we get into this passage. Heavenly Father, God, I ask by your power, by the power of your Spirit working in the hearts of all of us here today, I pray that you would open our hearts to receive your word. God, that as I speak, I would only speak as you speak. That I would say your words and emphasize your commands. And uh, Lord, help me not to turn from your word, neither to the right nor to the left. And I pray that all of us would have open hearts to receive it this morning. And that it wouldn't just be words we hear, And feel a temporary conviction over. But words that change our lives. That change the way that we speak. That change the way that we live. In the workplace. At the home. And wherever we go in this community. Help us to be people of the book. People that speak. Read. Meditate. And live by your word. In Jesus name. Amen. If I could summarize the definition of a prophet. In a simple phrase, I would say this, 
Prophets speak as God speaks. That's their job. To speak on God's behalf. One of my favorite prophets in the Old Testament is the prophet Micaiah. Have you heard of him? Micaiah prophesied during the divided kingdom, and he prophesied in Israel under the notoriously wicked King Ahab. Now, one story in the Old Testament goes that uh, Ahab had consulted the prophets because he was about to go into battle against Syria. And so he consulted all the prophets in his land. That is, the false prophets that would simply stroke his ego. He wanted yes men. He wanted prophets that would prophesy success behind his military campaign. Now Jehoshaphat, who was the ally and king of Judah at the time, he asked Ahab, did you really consult all the prophets in your kingdom? Now Ahab confessed, well, not all of them. I didn't consult Micaiah, the prophet. In fact, I hate Micaiah because he never prophesies good about me, which might be a hint. But Jehoshaphat convinces him, hey, you need to go send for Micaiah. You need to be thorough to make sure that the Lord is behind us in this military campaign. And so Micaiah sends, or sorry, Ahab sends a messenger to Micaiah. And it's kind of a funny comedic scene because the messenger, he approaches Micaiah and he says, listen, Micaiah, could you please just go with the flow here? Every other prophet in the kingdom is prophesying success. For Ahab, could you just come and tell the king what he wants to hear? Like, don't rock the boat, Micaiah. And so he requests Micaiah to come and talk to the king. And Micaiah's response is classic. This is the prophet. Listen to what he says. He turns and he looks at the messenger. He says, as Yahweh lives, what Yahweh says, that I will say. In other words... My job as a prophet is not to stroke the ego of kings. My job as a prophet is not necessarily to make his life miserable. My job as a prophet is to speak as God speaks. What God says to me, that's what I'll say. That is the spirit of the prophet. Now, at Summit Bible Church, uh, we are cessationists. In that we believe that the office of prophet, or the spiritual gift of prophecy, has ceased. But we don't believe that the spirit of prophecy has ceased, or the spirit of the prophet. The spirit of the prophet lives on. Uh, It lives on through the preacher. It lives on through the evangelist. It lives on through the counselor. It lives on through the ambassador of Jesus Christ, who go out to the world and and speak on behalf of God. And, and, And Christian, I just want to encourage you that We need to embrace the spirit of the prophet in that whatever we have to say to the world, whatever we have to say to the loved one that comes to us with a problem in life, whatever we have to say in our workplace, if we get the platform to speak in front of public audiences, whatever we have to say, may we only say what God says. May we speak as God speaks. Because in reality, we don't have anything else to offer the world. We don't have anything else to say. We don't have our opinions, what we think is right or wrong, or how we feel. 
No, no, no. We should speak as God speaks. May we, like Ezekiel, eat the scroll. We just read about Ezekiel eating the word of God so that he might speak on God's behalf. May we be those kinds of people that know God's word and speak as God speaks. And you need to know something, that if you do that, there will be persecution. It is not an easy road. Jesus told us the world will hate us because of me. He said they'll hate you because of me. And often we see in Scripture that the plight of the prophet is a difficult road. And uh, there won't always be what the world would call success as you speak as God speaks. And in this case, in, in our passage, we see two prophets who were rejected. By the way, both of them eventually murdered. One murdered in our text this morning, another murdered later. And the, per, the first prophet was rejected because he claimed to be the Son of God. The second prophet was rejected because he called out a governor in sin. But both spoke as God spoke, as God spoke. Both, both were faithful to that task, even though their very life depended on it. So we can learn from these two examples, these two prophets. First, I want us to look at the holy prophet. So the first point in your outline is the holy prophet rejected. The holy prophet rejected. It should be obvious, but when I say the holy prophet, I'm talking about Jesus Christ. He was set apart above all the other prophets in Scripture. He is holy. He is perfect without any sin. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses foretold about a prophet, a prophet that would come after him, that would be greater than him, greater than Moses, the great lawgiver of Israel. And he said, when this prophet comes, he's going to come to you like God came to you at Sinai, yet his glory will be concealed because he's going to come in the form of a man. I believe when Moses was talking about this prophet, he was speaking about Jesus, foretelling his coming, because Jesus is the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and then the Word became flesh. So literally, God's Word manifests itself in the person of Jesus Christ. He is God. He is the holy prophet. And we see in the first account here that Jesus was rejected. The holy prophet was rejected. Now it says these events take place after Jesus had spoken parables and that he goes back to his hometown in Nazareth. Now Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but he was raised in Nazareth, which is a small town in the region of Galilee. Now, you know, hometowns love their heroes. You, know, you could probably think of your favorite athlete, your favorite, you know, or, uh, artist or, you know, whatever, celebrity, and you, you might know their hometown, and their hometown is really proud of them. And so you might think that Jesus would get a warm reception from his hometown, even his own household. But we see that's not the case. Jesus and his family were well known in Nazareth. Uh, you know, they're named in this passage. He frequently taught in the synagogues. He was known in the religious uh, group. And no doubt, the report of his miracles had reached the, the hometown. In fact, his fame had reached even the ears of 
the Tetrarch, Herod. And so Jesus is gaining a following, gaining popularity. The word is spreading, and he goes back to his hometown. We might assume that he'd receive a warm reception, but he doesn't. Jesus teaches in the synagogue. They are skeptical and ask questions, and then they consider him a scandal, and they cast him out. Nazareth rejects Jesus, and in turn, Jesus rejects Nazareth. Luke chapter 4 and Mark 6 record this same event and and fill in some of the details. First, Matthew tells us that Jesus teaches in the synagogue. In verse 54, he taught them in their synagogue. And then afterwards, it skips right to the end and says, so that they were astonished. But Matthew doesn't tell us what he taught. Luke does. Luke tells us what his sermon was. Luke tells us that he got up in front of the people at the synagogue and his sermon text was Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 2. Let me read it for you. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so Jesus started his sermon by reading the text. He read that text, and then here was his sermon. Here was his sermon. Here's what he said. Today, that scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, I am the anointed one that Isaiah was talking about. I am the Messiah. I am the Christ who has come to save sinners. That was Jesus' sermon. It's a very gospel-centered, Christ-exalting sermon. (laughs) Excellent exposition of this text. He's the fulfillment of it. The holy prophet comes and fulfills prophecy. Points to himself, he says, I am this anointed one. Now that was his sermon. So it was at that statement that these people were astonished. There was a gasp. (gasps) They marveled. And Jesus, by the way, has been proving that this text is true. He has proven that he's the fulfillment of this prophecy because he fulfills all the miracles that Isaiah talked about the anointed one doing. He has calmed the storm. He has power over nature. He has healed sickness and disease. He's cast out demons. He's forgiven sin. He's raised even people from the dead. This is surely the anointed one. They had the proof. And here Jesus declares himself to be the Messiah. But did they receive his words? No, instead of responding in belief, in faith, they start asking questions. Doubtful, skeptical questions. The first question they ask is, where did this man get this wisdom? Where did this come from? And these mighty works. By the way, that's the question they end with too. Where did this man get all these things? Let me tell you something, that is a stupid question. There are such things as stupid questions. Here's one example of one. When a teacher gives you the answer as clear as day, right before 
you ask the question. That's foolish. The teacher just gave you the answer. Jesus just told them, I am the anointed one. The Spirit of God is upon me. Where do you think I got this power? It's not earthly wisdom. It's not from an earthly training center. It's not from my earthly family. This is from heaven. This is divine. I am the anointed one of and from God. He is God. See, their algorithm for Messiah was upside down. They're looking for earthly accreditation. They're looking to his family. Well, don't we know this is the carpenter's son? Well, this is Mary's boy. He has brothers and sisters here. He's trained in Nazareth. Does anything good come from Nazareth? Another person has said. They're looking at all the wrong places. They should be looking at the heavenly credentials. The prophecies of Isaiah who talked about the Messiah being anointed by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit descended upon him as a dove at his baptism. He had divine wisdom. They had already seen his teaching. This man is far above the scribes and the Pharisees. I mean, they went to the, you know, the, the Harvard School of Prophecy. And, and Jesus out-teaches them. He knows better than the Sadducees and the Pharisees who knew their Bibles oh so well. He taught them with authority. Authority even greater than the scribes. And beyond the divine wisdom in his teachings, he has divine power, again, to stop storms, to heal the sick, to cast out demons, to forgive sin, and raise the dead. This is the Messiah. This is the Messiah. And instead of receiving him and believing, after all these evidences, look at verse 57. It says, they took offense at him. They took offense at him. You know what that word offense is? It's scandalon. They considered Jesus a scandal. His words were a scandal. Luke tells us that it's at this point that they tried to drive him out of the city and off of a cliff. They tried to kill him. But Jesus avoided because his time had not yet come. He had more teaching and miracles to do, more to accomplish. That would not be the way he would die. That would be a quicker death than the death he chose and suffered as the holy prophet. And Jesus says this in verse 57. There's a lot of negatives in this sentence, so it's kind of hard to understand. Essentially, he says this. Listen, a prophet doesn't get no R-E-S-P-E-C-T in his own hometown. No respect. No honor. Not even in his own household. And so let the record state that Nazareth, the hometown of the Messiah, rejected him. Rejected him. They are the road soil that Jesus had talked about. I mean, the truth had been so clear and sown right before their eyes, but they, with their stiff necks and their hard heads, they just rejected it. They wanted nothing to do with this Messiah, nothing to do with their hometown hero. And Jesus says in John 12, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. So Nazareth as a whole would be judged for these words that they spoke against the Messiah. Jesus says, dishonor the prophet, you discard the miracles. 
I'm not going to give you the benefits of the truth or the sign of the truth if you reject the truth wholesale. It says, he did not do mighty works there because of their unbelief. Miracles are a sign that accommodates the truth preached. It's not about the miracles. It's about the truth. Miracles are signs of the truth. But if you forsake the truth, then you forsake the sign. Jesus doesn't want empty followers that are there for the benefits. He has a message for them to receive, and they need to receive it by faith. And so the plight, the difficult journey of the holy prophet is that he would be rejected by his own people, and he's rejected at Nazareth. And he'd be rejected even to the end, before governors and before the Jews, and crucified eventually. But this is obviously a turning point for Jesus and his ministry. At this point, Jesus does miracles in front of large crowds, but he he doesn't do a lot of teaching to the large crowds. He teaches specifically to his disciples. His words are now more focused and specific. We'll see this turn as we go further into the Gospel of Matthew. So the holy prophet is rejected. Now the second prophet we see here is the herald prophet. The herald prophet is killed. The herald prophet is killed. By herald, I'm talking about John the Baptist, who was the herald of the Lord Jesus. The herald goes before the king and proclaims the arrival of the king. And that's exactly what John the Baptist did. He went before Christ Jesus and proclaimed his arrival. Now, verse 1 is the connection between what happened at the end of 13 and what story Matthew is about to tell in 14. This connecting phrase is at that time. So I believe that the gospel author knew what he was doing in putting these two stories together. Two, Two prophets rejected. The holy prophet and the herald prophet. And so Matthew writes in verse 1, he says, At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. Now this introduces us to not Herod the Great, but one of his sons, Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas is a tetrarch over the regions of Galilee and Perea. I have a map, I think, of his region of rule. might be hard to see, especially if you're colorblind and you mix red and green. (laughs) But the green territories, if you see the words Galilee and Perea, that is Herod Antipas's territory. Now, Nazareth is up in Galilee. That's where Jesus is. And we believe at this point, because of Josephus the historian, that Herod Antipas is down at the bottom of Perea. You see that uh, fortress there in those white words, Machiris. That was Herod Antipas's fortress. And that is where he stayed for political reasons. Um, so Herod is all the way down there at that time. And Jesus is all the way up in Nazareth, and the word is spreading, his fame is spreading all the way down to Machiris, and Herod hears about Jesus. And what does he say when he hears of the fame of Jesus? Look at verse 2. He said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. He's a ghost. That is why these miracle powers are at work in him. Wait a minute. What happened to John the Baptist? 
Last we heard of John in this gospel is that he was in prison and he had sent messengers to make sure that Jesus was the Christ and he got good news back that Jesus is the, is the Christ. He had fulfilled all these miracles. What happened to him? Why is he dead? And why must he be raised? And why is Herod concerned about this? Well, it's at this point that Matthew goes back in time. And he gives us a flashback as to what happened to John the Baptist. Now, I've got to warn you, parents. This is a rated R story. But I'm going to give it to you in PG. But PG even requires some parental guidance. Okay, So if you have questions after the sermon, just be ready to answer biblically. First, who is John the Baptist? We've got to remind ourselves, who is this prophet? He is the heralding prophet. His job, again, was to go before the king and prepare the way for his arrival. And Jesus called him Elijah. That is the prophet that was prophesied about in Malachi. His sermons were full of kingdom hope and calls for repentance. In fact, Mark sums up his sermons well in Mark 1.4. John proclaimed a baptism of repentance and forgiveness of sin. John called everybody to repentance. Everybody. Everybody in his audience. He was heard by many. He had large influence in the region of Galilee. Even at one point, Herod the Tetrarch himself was in the audience. And John didn't have any exceptions. He didn't cower in the presence of a Tetrarch. He was bold and courageous and he called Herod to repentance. Now, what did he call Herod to repentance for? He had called Herod to repentance, look at verse 4, by saying, it is not lawful for you to have her. Now, who is her? Her, we'll see in verse 3, is Herodias. Herodias. She is the former wife of his brother, Philip. Now, the law of God is clear. Leviticus 20.21 says this, If a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness. They shall be childless. It's clear in God's Word. You cannot commit adultery, be married to your brother's wife. That's exactly what Herod Antipas had done. And Herodias, Herodias was complying in the adultery. She had left Philip for Antipas, probably because Antipas at that time had more power and more influence. Now, so this is an adulterous relationship, but it is even worse than that. I want you to see a family tree of Herod the Great. So Herod the Great had many wives. This is just three of them, okay? Mariamne one, Mariamne two, and then Malthes. Herod the Great, through Mariamne one, had a son named Aristobulus. A lot of synonyms in that word. And Aristobulus had a daughter named Herodias. Herod had another wife, Mariamne II, who had a son named Philip. So as you can see by this family tree, Herodias is not only Philip's ex-wife, it's Herod Antipas's niece. So, Herodias 
and Philip had commit incest together. Philip had married his niece. And then another relationship of, of incest and adultery when Herod took Herodias from Philip. So this is not only an adulterous relationship, it's an incestuous relationship. This is really gross and depraved. The law also has something to say about incest. In Leviticus 18, God says, You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's brother, your uncle. Herodias had committed that sin twice. Twice with two of her uncles. So John is doing his job, is he not? He's calling out this gross immorality, this sin. He's calling both Herod and Herodias to repentance. And Herod is not as offended as his wife. In fact, Herod is kind of curious about John. Probably curious about his courage. Nobody else has talked to me that way. And fascinated with what he was saying about the kingdom of God. And this king that had come, which is Jesus Christ. But Herodias would have nothing to do with it. And we're told in the text that it was for the sake of Herodias that John was put into prison. And Josephus, the historian, tells us that John was taken to the prison at Machairus. So he's at the fortress where Herod and Herodias are staying. Again, Herodias is offended by the preaching, and she has John thrown in prison. And we're told that the only reason, if we look back at our passage, the only reason that Herod doesn't kill him is because he's a true politician. He fears the people. He's watching the polls. He doesn't want public opinion to go down. He wants to please the people. And he knows that the people think a lot of John. They think highly of him as a prophet and a good man. And so he doesn't kill him, but he has him in prison because he feared the people. Now the story gets worse. Look at verse 6. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod. Josephus, the historian, tells us the name of this daughter. She was Solome, or Salome. So think about the family tree again. Salome is the daughter of Philip and Herodias. So think about the initial incestual relationship and who this young girl is. She's a young girl at the time, probably not much older than 12, 14 maybe. Herodias produced not only her daughter, but her cousin through Philip's marriage. And so now this young girl that's dancing before Herod is not only his stepdaughter, but she is his niece and great-niece at the same time. Wicked, horrible, incestuous immorality. And by the way, this is not innocent cultural dancing. This is seductive dancing. Herod was pleased means that he was aroused by his stepdaughter, his niece, a young girl, likely 12 to 14. God says in Leviticus 18, this kind of behavior is depravity. This is depravity, declares the Lord. And I just want you to know that unbridled sexual sin takes men and women to places of horrifying 
abominations. Horrifying. So, reading about this scene, it's sobering to think that the kind of perverse activity they were watching in Herod's palace can be watched in an instant on that little device in your pocket. Similar acts, relationships. What was, now, what was once the private pleasure of the elite is now the pervasive poison of an entire generation. Men and women around the globe are slaves in Herod's palace. Wicked, wicked stuff. Horrible abominations that are now, in our society, so very public and still wicked. Statistics tell us, and these are old statistics, by the way, that 93% of boys, 62% of girls under 18 have been exposed to Herod's palace. 10% of them admit to visiting Herod's palace daily, 20% weekly, 60% monthly watching for pleasure these kinds of abominable activities. I mean, these are statistics, again, that were taken in 2012. What do you think the numbers are today, 10 years, 11 years later? With even more access and ways to hide search activity, the reality is even higher. God says this is depravity. This is depravity. So Herod, in verse 7 under the spell of lust, and he's probably drunk too, promised with an oath, verse 7, to give her whatever she might ask. So Salome goes back to her mother and asks, Mom, what should I ask for? I thought about this. Herodias is not offended that all these people at this party, are watching her daughter dance seductively. Herodias is not offended that Herod, her husband, is aroused by her daughter. Herodias is still offended by that pesky prophet that called her out on sin. How wicked and depraved the society had become. This woman is offended by the words of God. And so she tells her daughter, 12 to 14, give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Wow. And so she goes back and tells Herod. And he's shocked out of his lustful and drunken stupor. It says in the text that he was sorry. He was sorry. But it was not a godly sorrow, it was a worldly sorrow because this sorrow didn't lead to his repentance. This sorrow led to death. That is, death of the prophet and his eventual death and demise. But because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. Won by the people. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to who? Salome. And she brought it to her mother. I got to tell you, when I was studying this, my heart broke for this young girl, Salome. I just thought about it. This girl's 12 to 14 years old. She has been groomed 
groomed by this house for the pleasure of men. And now she holds a bloody head on a platter for her mom. It's heartbreaking. And I pray that we as men would protect the daughters of God from such vile abominations. We would protect our own daughters from exposure to this kind of sinful and wickedness that, again, can easily be accessed through various means. And I pray that even as a church and as the people of God, we would see this scene of abomination and of sin and that it would break our hearts and deter us from going down that path and cleanse us from sin, that we turn and repent from that kind of immorality and turn to Christ who is pure so that we may be pure and ask Christ to cleanse our heart from sin and wickedness because we just know how depraved you can get if you go down that path. I pray that we would repent and again run to Jesus Christ and ask Him to cleanse our hearts so that we may be pure and not be defiled so defiled as this. This is an explicit and wicked scene. And I don't think Matthew spares the details. He obviously doesn't. I think for a couple of reasons. I believe to show us both the depravity of sinful men, how bad can it get, and then also to show us the boldness and the courage of the prophet to speak the truth in the face of death. So two prophets are rejected. Two prophets rejected. You think about the people that the prophets spoke to in these two scenes, it's two different parties oppose the prophets. On the one hand, you had the empty religiosity of Nazareth. That is, they knew the law, they knew the writings of the prophets, but they didn't have the essence of it. They didn't see Christ. And so they had this kind of empty religiosity. They might look like good people on the outside attending the synagogue. They're church people. But again, they rejected the Messiah. So you have that party, the religious, that opposes Jesus, the holy prophet. And then on the other side, you have the explicit depravity of the secular world, of the world. And that party also rejects the prophet, but for different reasons. That party doesn't want the, the righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus Christ. They don't want to hear the, the law. They don't want to hear that they're a sinner in need of a Savior, and so they reject it. I want to live my way, continue down this road of depravity and abomination, and want nothing to do with the righteousness of God, with the Word of God, and with the words of the prophet. And so we see... The two opposing parties to the prophets, you have the empty religiosity of Nazareth and you have the explicit depravity of Herod. Don't we find these two parties prevalent today? Those are the people that surround us in society. I mean, we're surrounded by empty religiosity. How many people claim to be Christians, but they don't really know Christ? You know, a lot of them have succumbed to humanistic philosophies. They're trying to explain Jesus' existence by earthly measures. There's so much, I think, apologetics that is 
fueled behind humanistic arguments, secular. And that has never been more apparent. Yeah, a lot of these people go to church, they claim themselves spiritual or religious, but they miss the heart of it. They're either moralistic or they're mystic. They don't have Christ. They don't have Christ. And so at some points, maybe you're thinking about a relative or even a person at work who claims to be religious or claims to be a good person or, or claims to even be a Christian, but you're like, man, I don't think you are. You don't know Jesus the Christ. You haven't received him as he is offered in Scripture. Christ alone by faith alone. On the other hand, many of us see the illicit depravity of today's society. I mean, it's never been more public. It's never been more out there. Streaming in on YouTube, streaming services, easily accessed on the smartphone. I mean, illicit depravity. So easy to access and so easy to watch. And so many people, again, are slaves in Herod's palace. They're enslaved to this lustful sin. And it's and they know it too. Because the temporary pleasure they feel is, is followed by a mountain of guilt that condemns them. Maybe some of you in this room are slaves in Herod's palace. You need to repent. You need to turn again from that sin that offers temporary, temporary pleasure and turn and run to Jesus Christ. At His right hands are pleasures evermore. The pleasure of knowing Christ and being satisfied with Him far surpasses the fleeting pleasure of sexual sin and immorality. And I just want you to know again, unbridled sexual sin leads men and women down a road of wicked abominations. It is a slippery and filthy road down. So, all the more reason for the spirit of the prophet in this age, isn't it? We need to be men and women who know this book. And who speak as God speaks to those of empty religious uh, religiosity and to those who are engulfed in illicit depravity. What else do you have to say? What else do you have to say to the world, to your family member, to your neighbor who's engaged in this kind of activity, to the coworker who talks about it openly in front of other coworkers? What else do you have to give them? You have the word of God. So embrace the spirit of the prophet and speak as God speaks. Speak the truth in love, as Ephesians tells us to do. Speak boldly and courageously. Speak for Christ's name and His honor, not to win the argument, not to win the debate, but your defense is for Christ. He is your Lord and Savior. So speak. Be bold. Be courageous as a prophet would. Speak as God speaks. Our message is the same as theirs, by the way. We proclaim Christ. We do exactly what Jesus did. And we call men and women to repentance and faith in Him. We do exactly what John the Baptist does. We don't have a different message. We have the same one. just need to be faithful to speak it when those opportunities come up. Now, listen. Not all of us have the platform of John the Baptist where we're preaching the gospel in front of kings and governors and presidents. God has given you a stewardship, essentially a, an opportunity, a circle, a sphere, if you will, a world that you live in and people that you touch and have relationship with, and your responsibility is to them. 
again, not, I'm hoping this week none of you fly to D.C. and storm the Capitol and, you know, don't, don't be foolish with this kind of responsibility, but take responsibility in the sphere of life that God has given you. Speak to the people that God has surrounded you with. Speak to them the truth. Speak as God speaks. We've got to speak the truth and expect persecution. Jesus told us in Matthew 5, Rejoice and be glad if they persecute you for my name's sake. Why? For the prophets did the same who went before you. They were persecuted. It's the plight of a prophet. And if it all ends with our head on a platter, so be it. Because while our head is on a platter, our spirit is in paradise with him. For the glory of Christ and for his name's sake. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we want to be a faithful people. Help us. Help us to be faithful. We want to speak as you speak. We want to be faithful to proclaim the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And we know that sometimes that'll be hard because it's calling sinners to repent. And Lord, we know from experience we don't like, we don't like to be told that we're sinners. It doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good to be called to repentance, but we know that's what we needed. We needed to hear that at some point for our hearts to break and for us to turn from our sinful lives and embrace Christ. So help us. Help us to speak the truth in love. Help us to be faithful. And God, give us an ear to those around us, relationships, so that we have the opportunities to preach the gospel, to proclaim the gospel, and to, in love, call some to repentance. God, I pray that you'd use us as faithful evangelists in the little spheres that you've given us, our family that we'll see on Thanksgiving and in Christmas, but perhaps a, you know, a, a family member that has passed and given us an opportunity to speak at a funeral to other family members. What happens after death? Lord, give us these opportunities and may we take advantage of them and be faithful. And Lord, also just as a prerequisite of all this, we know we need to eat your word. We need to be in the book, people of the book, so that we know what to say in season and out of season. So give us your word, Lord. Help us to develop the discipline to read it, to meditate on it, and to, to, um, to live it out in our lives. So help us, Lord. Do what only you can do in our hearts and in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.